So take a moment and think. If you could have any superpower, you get to choose one superpower, which one would you choose? Think about that just for a minute. Any superpower that you could have, and you could have it forever or, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? What superpower would you choose? So I'm going to list a few, and some of you say, oh, that's what I came up with, or, you know, that's a lot better than what I came up with, or whatever. So uh, how about this, the ability to fly, right? Some of you thought of that. How about super intelligence? Some of you thinking, well, I already have that. Well, no, you don't. Um, immortality, some, you know, that's a, you know, we read comic books or we go to the, in any of the Spider-Man or Iron Man or the, those movies and they all have a superpower, right? How about talking animals? Some of you go, yeah, that would be really cool. And you, you might find out they're not really talking about a lot or thinking about a lot. Hey. Anyway, super speed or how about the ability to read minds? Some of the husbands are sitting there going, oh, boy, that would be so helpful because I, I have no idea what she's thinking. Um, you may not want to be able to read her mind. That may not be a good thing to have. That may, or time travel, even time travel, to be able to jump from one period of time to another period of time. Those are all superpowers, and uh, it may be that you would choose one of those or there's something else that you, you thought of. Uh, we're not going to talk about that, but uh, we are going to talk about uh, the end times. And, you know, when we talk about prophecy, when you talk about the end times, usually people like we, when a pastor does a series on prophecy and end times, people love those series. And I'll tell you why they like those series. Because they basically get to come in and listen, and they get excited about the future and eternity, which is a good thing. But they come to a place where you realize, I don't have to worry about anything. I just have to come in, listen to a lecture, and leave. And there's nothing that has to really change in my life. So I'm not on the hook for too much. I just have to say whether I agree or disagree with what the pastor said. I don't really have to change because ultimately he's going to give me a detail. You know, most prophecy uh, teachings give you a detail about what's happening over in Israel or in the Arab nations or in the world economy or the mark of the beast or some of all these different things. There's speculation about this person or that person or that country or this country and what play, role will America play. And all of this is really speculation. And you go around and around and around and you walk out and you say, that was really interesting. But in the end, I don't really have to do much about it. The purpose of prophecy, though, as you read it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is for a number of reasons. It's given to warn people. It's given to warn people. It's to to tell people to prepare. Uh, It's to prepare for his return. Jesus told a parable about uh, people that were invited to a wedding and they had their their lamps and not to let their lamps go out. Some let their lamps go out. That's basically about being prepared for the coming of Jesus. Uh, prophecy, Prophecy is given to us to remind us that we're to live for him. That there's a day of judgment coming, not just for people who don't love Jesus, but for people who do love Jesus. So uh, there's really, when, you, when it's done well and when it's done right, prophecy is a, is a time where we, we should be leaving, reflecting on uh, what if the Lord were to return today. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the perspective I take is this. 
that we are not, as Christians and as the church, we're not called to be part of the planning committee. We're not to set the date and the time. We're not to even describe who the players are in, in all of it. You can speculate all you want. But we're to be the welcoming committee. We're to be ready for his return. And we're, you know, and that's the whole parable of the, uh, the lanterns. That's what that's all about. So what I want to do is I want to give you a, a really short five to seven minute overview of the, the, the prophetic, uh, what's out there and what are the beliefs, theological beliefs. And then we'll take a passage, we'll look at the book of Revelation for a minute and draw that out. Uh, so here's a quick overview. If you've never had an overview of prophecy, I'm going to try to give you a five to seven minute quick overview. Okay, so here goes. I haven't timed myself, so we'll just see how it goes. Uh, there's three basic views of the millennial period. The millennial period, uh, in, in some ways, by people, it's a thousand years some people take that literally. Some people take it as not literal. The post-millennial view uh, is a view that basically says, and it's the return of Jesus basically holds, that we are currently part of the post-millennial, part of the millennial view. It's not a thousand years. The, the post-millennial view teaches that Jesus is establishing his kingdom here and now, right now, uh, on earth, through his church, as it preaches the gospel and makes disciples of all nations. And essentially, the goal, the thing is, it's like, it's going to grow, it's going to grow, it's going to grow until the whole world hears the gospel and repents, and essentially, you know, we have heaven here on earth. So we will usher in his return. Um, this view has really lost a lot of um, energy over the years because the world doesn't seem to be getting better. And most people have a very pessimistic view of the world after the world wars that we've gone through after the atrocities that uh, are going on all around the world i mean just pick up a newspaper and you just see it and it's hard to believe that the world is getting better uh, becoming a better place for the return of jesus so that view has really lost um, a lot of uh, energy the second major view and this is the one that most evangelical baptist bible churches would hold is the premillennial view of the return of Jesus. And this view teaches that Jesus will return before the millennial period and reign over the earth. And, and there's a golden thousand year period of his reign over the earth. Okay, that he's going to come and reign and rule over the earth. Now, within this view, there's a number of different views of what happens to the church. That's us, those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ. What happens to the church during the millennial period? There's a number of different views on that. One view is, and uh, this is a very popular view, is that before the, the, uh, the tribulation period, uh, that's a seven-year period of God pouring out his you know, wrath, and ultimately the second half is worse than the first half, but it's all bad, um, that before the seven years of tribulation takes place, that the church will be raptured or caught up together. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, they would use that passage and say that's the description of the church being raptured, gathered up together before the tribulation period. Okay? Um, if you've ever read the Left Behind books, they're pre-millennial, pre-tribulational. Okay? That's the view. That's a very common view within evangelical Christianity today. If you've ever read the books or you saw the bad movie that Cage was in, 
and it was a bad movie. But essentially, uh, by the way, any movie that Nick Cage is in now is not a good movie. He made some good movies, but I'm not making a point. But that was a bad movie. But what they're trying to do there is they're trying to describe what's the earth going to be like because the church, the Christians have been raptured away. Some are going to be left behind. And what do you do when you're left behind? There's a song and everything. You can look it up. All right. So. The, 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 so you have the pre-tribulational uh, rapture of the church. You have the mid-tribulational rapture of the church. And obviously, if the tri- tribulation is seven years, three and a half years, or halfway into the tribulation, the church will be raptured out before the great wrath, the second half, where all you know, it, or, you know that everything goes to hell in a handbasket, and uh, before the three and a half years, the church will be raptured out. That's the mid-trip. There's another kind of a view sort of like that, but it goes a little further and says the pre-wrath, which says that the church will be raptured shortly after the second three and a half years of the tribulation period, um, the church will be carried out before the great wrath God pours out. Um, and then there's the post-tribulational view, and this is, this is also called the historic premillennial view, and this is the view that was held by the church for many, many years um, the historic premillennial view basically says that uh, history, uh, that, that, uh, that the church will uh, go through the Great Tribulation. There's no distinction between Israel and the church. Um, the premillennial, uh, pre-tribulational, that's the one where you get raptured before the tribulation. The post is you, the church goes through the tribulation. The reason that that gained a lot of ground was uh, there was a Bible written by uh, C.I. Schofield, and it had that view in it, and a lot of people bought it. It was one of the first study Bibles ever taught, you know, ever sold. And so that view became, you know, a very, very uh, big view. You, you'll see a lot of uh, pastors and teachers that hold to the pre-tribulational view. The post-tribulational, though, has really been, and that's why they call it the historical uh, premillennial, because it was the one that was held by the church for many, many years. So you have, okay, let's review. You have the the um, post-millennial view that the, the millennium is, is really not a literal thousand years. The world's getting better and better until it comes to a place where Christ returns. You have the pre-millennial view where Christ is going to come before the millennial period. It's a thousand-year period. He's going to rule and reign over that. And then you have views of the tribulation that happens before, right before the, tri, uh, before the millennial uh, thousand-year rule. And then you have the uh, amil view. And amil just means a... Before the word just means not. <laughs> In other words, there's no millennial. Uh, and again, that's, uh, there's no thousand-year period. And uh, most of what was talked about in, by Jesus about the great destruction coming happened already. It took place in A.D. 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem. And we're living uh, in a day um, uh, where the millennial has already begun. And uh, it's identified with the current church age. Now, I said that a lot of people held these views. The, um, let me give you the statistics. Um, I talked about post-millennialism. Uh, 11% of pastors hold that view. Uh, the Amil view, 31% hold that view. And then 48% hold to the pre-tribulational view of the return of Jesus. All right. So you could write books on just what I covered there. And there's all these debates and all these scriptures and it goes back and forth um, many times ad nauseum. Okay. 
What is the view of the free church? Well, we do have a view, and if you guess the premillennial view, you would be correct. Let me read you the premillennial statement of faith on Christ's return. We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial. I thought I had that up there. Premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at the time known only to God demands our constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Now, what's interesting is the first phrase, the first sentence in there says, we, speaking of the free church, believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return. So they obviously are saying, we hold to the premillennial view of the church, of Jesus returning. He's going to return before a literal uh, millennial period. They're changing that. That's going to happen. In, the, in fact, I think they just made the, the suggestion to change it this summer at the, at the national conference. And they're going to take one word out of that statement. Guess what word they're taking out? Premillennial. So it's just going to say, we're not going to take a position on the millennial period. It's, it's, it's not that big of a deal. We're not going to make it a divisive issue. So, um, and I, I actually think that's not going to be a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. Um, so anyways, there's my short treatise on what does the free church teach? What are the different views of the millennial period and the tribulation period? So now you can go uh, dig deeper if you'd like. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, though, you're living in a fantasy world? You Christians, you just are living in a fantasy world. You're just looking for just this weird, you, you just, you have your eye in the sky. You're, and some people say, um, you are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, uh, there's a reason why we are living or looking towards a fantasy world, which isn't such a fantasy after all. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we have these Bibles. And if you don't know where Revelation is, last book in the, it's the last book, so you're in luck. And it's the, like the last chapter, second to last chapter. So it's on page 961. And I want to read this passage to you so you can follow along with me. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just ex- uh, express something. The book of Revelation is really like no other book in the Bible. It's called apocalyptic literature. It uses a lot of pictures, a lot of symbols, and <coughs> John is trying to describe things the best he can with what he knows in his life experience, which is quite difficult. Have you ever had that experience where you see something that's just beyond words and hard to describe, and you're trying to describe it to somebody, and you're using pictures? Oh, that's not good. That's not good. Well, kind of John is, is, is struggling to describe what he sees. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 
And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for I will tell you what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of of the water of life. Notice that last phrase, to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Well, what do we know about the future? This is what we do know about the future. We know that we will live in a community in an eternal physical world. He talks about a new heaven, a new earth. He talks about a new city, a new Jerusalem, that we will all live on earth in a holy city. And a heaven will come down to earth and new Jerusalem will come down. And, but it's a physical city. Now, the question is, why a city? When you think of city, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Some of you say traffic, people. Yeah, people. Essentially, city means people. There will be people in heaven, which means, and, and, and interestingly enough, the idea there is that there are going to be relationships in heaven. So all the relationships that you have now are going to continue in heaven. You, you're, you're going to, you know, have those relationships. You're not going, it's not, you're not a, 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 a chalkboard or a whiteboard. It's going to be erased at your death. You, you will retain those memories. In, in Genesis chapter 1, verse, you know, chapter 1 through 3, what do we see? We see God created a perfect place. For, and he places man and woman in this perfect place. And he basically says for them to, to, to uh, manage uh, and to have relationships with each other and to grow and to uh, live in relationship. And so they begin in relationship. They have a relationship with God. They have a relationship with one another. Everything's perfect. Then they sin. What, what's the first thing that they do when they sin? They hide and they put on clothes. They begin to put on masks. They begin to, to cover themselves up. And you know what? God said it, when he created man, it's not good for man to be alone. So he placed them in a perfect environment. They sin. And immediately after they sin, the first thing they do is they hide from God and they hide from one another. They put a mask on. And, and essentially, we all, every one of us in this room, we have a mask on. We present ourselves a certain way. We present a certain persona that we want people to see. And we hold back things that we don't see because we think in our heads. And I don't think I'm the only one here. We think in our heads, if you knew this about me, you would not like me. You would reject me. You would think you would laugh at me. Uh, and, and so um, the, the idea there is if you knew, really knew me, you would reject me. We want to put the mask down because it's hard to live with the masks and the perception that we put out there. And we say things like, how are you? And we go, oh, I'm fine. We're not fine. We're not fine. But we want to put the mask down, but we fear rejection. So what he's saying, what John is saying is that when we live in heaven, everything is out there. That you're accepted. There's this perfect, deep love. Perfect open and honest relationships. Uh, There's no more hiding. You don't have to read somebody's mind because they'll tell you what they're thinking. When they're bugged, they won't be passive aggressive about it. They'll tell you, I'm bugged. This bothered me. This concerns me. When when you're bothered by something, you won't say, well, I'm just going to let it go because I don't want this person to get angry. No, you'll deal with it. There'll There'll be open and honest, perfect relationships. 
Uh, Christianity, though, tells us that we're not going to be stripped of our relationships, but that all of our relationships will be restored and revived and taken to new places of depth, love, and caring. Now, think about that for a minute. The best times in your life, and I can tell you what they are. They're not when you go out in your new boat or drive your new car or get your new job. Those aren't the best times. The best times in life that you've experienced are with people. People that you love and people you care about. If you think back, the best times in your life, the ones you've had with certain people, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, but it's with people. Conversely, the worst times in your life is when you lose somebody who's very close to you, whether it's through a divorce, whether it's through a friendship, whether it's through death. It's terrible. You feel like a part of you has been ripped apart. You lose somebody that you love. And God is promising us this, that we're going to have a fantastic new reality where these relationships will no longer be broken and they will no longer be they will no longer be covered or, or, or guarded. They will be open and they will be free and they will go on forever. That's number one. That's what we do know. Secondly, we know that we will live out the reality of our greatest fantasy. Um, John says there's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more death. Uh, I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, I'm sure many of you are too. The idea of heaven is that there's love without parting. There's no longer saying so long for now. There's uh, good over evil. There's stepping outside of time. Isn't that what fantasy is all about? Right? Isn't that what fantasy is all about? That there's, there's no more love without parting? That, that we're able to step outside of time? That, um, that, uh, uh, that, that good finally wins over evil? Isn't that, you know, one of the, the, the cornerstones of, of a good fantasy? Why is it that so many people love fantasy books and, and movies? Uh, for instance, you know, you, you're, you're drawn to, to stories like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, even The Princess Bride, right? <laughs> and what is it? It's all fa- it's the fantasy of it. It's this. I wish it were like that. Well, what John is saying is you don't have to wish anymore because it will happen. Uh, Why do we long for superpowers? Why do we long for another world? Because we were made for another world. John is telling us that the other world is fantastic, indescribable, beyond our wildest imaginations. That's what John's saying. John is saying you have an imagination and you have this, this hunger for a fantasy other world because that's what you were made for. And one day you will experience it if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of heaven. That's the hope of heaven. Number three, the third thing we know is that we're, we're living right now in an already but not yet period of eternity. He says in verse 5, I'm making everything new. He doesn't say, I'm going to make everything new. I hope to make everything new. One day I'll make everything new. He's saying, I am currently making everything new. I'm changing the world right before your eyes. We see glimpses of heaven right now, here and now. We see it in our lives. We see it in the lives of the people around us. We see the Holy Spirit transforming us and transforming the the lives around us. We see the Word of God changing people. We see Christ followers. If you were to just say, look at your life and say, are you a different person than you were before Christ? You'd say, I'm totally night and day. 
My life has changed since I came to Jesus Christ. I'm a, I'm a better person. Not because I'm, you know, bragging. It's just because God is doing a work on my life. I'm becoming more transparent. I'm becoming more loving. I, I'm looking to, to the needs of others rather than so much on my own needs. Why? Because the Bible and the Spirit of God are driving me to become that kind of a person. In other words, the transformation is taking place right now. We are experiencing a bit of heaven here on earth. Christianity holds an honest assessment of the human condition. And it holds it in tension. See, that's one of the things that Christianity is honest about. Christianity basically says that men and women can do horrible, evil things. That we in this room can do horrible and evil things. That it says that there is, there is a, there's an inborn evil within us. That if, if it's left to fester, if it's left to grow, if it's not taken care of, we can do horrible things. But on the other hand, it basically says we, when we come to Jesus, we can find grace, we can find forgiveness and freedom and power to change. That we can be transformed daily by the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Word of God says. Hold those in tension. See, we're loved by God, but we're not loved because we're lovely. He loves us to make us lovely. He loves us first so that we can become what He wants us to be, bit by bit. He makes us beautiful. That's the process of sanctification. That we become more and more like Him, day by day, week by week, year by year. That, that this year I'm more like Christ than I was. And if I look back at, at, at how God has changed me, I could see that He's bringing heaven to earth. I'm a different person than I was. Another thing that happens that we know about heaven is that we're invited into this city. The invitation is through the grace of the Lamb. Notice I, I reread verse 6. It says, To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Um, the question is, who gets into the city? Who gets into this beautiful this fantasy city that's coming down from heaven to earth. Who gets in? The rich? The powerful? The industrious? The hardworking? No, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. Those who are thirsty. Now, what does it mean to be thirsty? What does it mean to be thirsty? These are people that, that, that know they need grace. These are people that say, there's something missing in my life. There's something that, that I'm empty. There's a... There's an emptiness in my life, and I can't put my finger on what it is. It's, I can't fill it with a career. I can't fill it with relationships. I can't fill it with hobbies. I can't, I, I don't know what, I mean, to a certain extent, those, those work. But in the end, when I lay my head down at night, I feel empty. And, and, and I think, you know, my, my first thought was the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at the well. You know who wrote the Gospel of John? John. Do you know who wrote the book of Revelation? John, right? And so John says to the woman at the well, Jesus says to the woman at the well, he says, I can give you living water that will fill your, your life, your soul. <laughs> your, see, and what Jesus was saying to the woman is the same thing he's saying to us. You have an emptiness. You have a void in your life that only I can fill. But I can give you living water. And once you get that living water, you will be filled to overflowing. And, and I'm the only one that can give you that. 
And so Jesus says, if you want to get into the city, you need to understand that you're thirsty, that you're empty, that you need a savior, that you that only I can give you that living water. I'm the only one that can give you what you desperately need. Do you remember, you know, you read that story about the woman at the well and she did not know she did not know that she was spiritually thirsty, did she? She didn't. She didn't know. She, she kept going back to, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get water? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm talking about a spiritual thirst. But you know what? She finally figured it out. She finally understood that, that, that Jesus was the one that was going to fill her life. Not all these other relationships that she was trying to fill her life with. Only Jesus could fill that, that void in her life. And so we have to come to a place where we say, you know, I'm really thirsty. I'm really thirsty, and I need, I need somebody to come and to fill that, that, that thirst in my life, that void in my life. Turn over uh, just one chapter to, to Revelation chapter 22 for a moment. Page 962. I want to start reading verse 1, and we'll close with this passage. Then the angel showed me a river with water, with the water of life, clear as a crystal flowing from the throne of, the God, of God, and of the of the Lamb. Notice that phrase, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Okay, he's going to use that phrase twice here. It flowed down uh, the center of the main street. On each side, the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve cups uh, of twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for for medicine to heal the nations. Uh, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. His name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine in them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now that phrase, the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's not what I expected when I read this. Probably not what you expected. You would think the throne of of God and the Lion. Right. Or the tiger or the bear, or, you know, something. It's a lamb. It's a fuzzy lamb. I mean, come on. What are you talking about? And here's the point. See, John is using apocalyptic literature. When you read about this, you go, how's he going to carve his name into my forehead? What does that mean? Is he going to get an engraver and he's going to, you know, well, what is going on here? And John is just trying to describe and there's going to be no light. And how is that going to, you know. If we try to take this literally, we're going off course. John is just trying his best to give us symbolic images of what is taking place. But the, the picture he gives here, the throne of God and of the Lamb, is very interesting. Because what we see here is, uh, when you think about, go back to the book of Exodus. God, God sends Moses down to Egypt to bring the people of, out. And the last, the, the last p- plague the last wrath that God poured down, the angel death passed over, the death of the firstborn. What did the people, what did the people of Israel have to do? They had, to, they had to sacrifice a lamb. And what did they have to do? They had to take the blood of the lamb, and then what did they have to do? They had to paint the doorpost, right? And if they painted the doorpost and they remained under the, 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 in the house where the doorpost had the blood of the lamb, the, the, the angel of death would pass over the house and they were spared the wrath right um so the firstborn would die and the firstborn in that day was the hope of the family 
all the hope of the family, you know, was 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 on the firstborn. You know, if they were successful, it was meant success for the family. So it was really a big deal. That firstborn son was there was a lot of weight on that firstborn son. So the, they had to slay the land, paint the doorposts with the blood. The angel of death would pass over. Um, so the point was the lamb had to die. So the firstborn didn't have to die. Right. And for, for in that household. So John the Baptist sees Jesus. And what does he say in the Gospel of John? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. So he looks at Jesus and he said, I get it now. You're the lamb. You're the lamb of God. Right. And you're going to take away the sins of the world. So God gave Jesus his firstborn son as a sacrifice to die for our sins so that we could live. Death took Jesus and passed over us because his blood has been sprinkled on the doorposts of our heart. He died so that we could live. I think that's what John is saying there when he talks about the throne and of the lamb. How do you gain entrance into the holy city? You don't do it by being a good person, living a good life, trying to work harder, uh, all those stuff. You, you come and say, I'm absolutely thirsty. I'm spiritually struggling. And unless the lamb comes in to my life and I receive that living water, I'm dead. And what's more... Your, your entrance into the holy city comes not because you've done anything, but because God sent his firstborn to become the Lamb of God who was slaughtered. And his blood went on the posts of the cross. And as we stand beneath the cross and under the blood of the Lamb, we enter in, not based upon anything that we've done, but by everything that he has done for us. We enter based upon his blood. We come because we, we find life because he died. That's the message that John is, is giving us. He says, this is all going to happen, but this is how you enter into the city. And there's a lot of people that are trying to enter in the city through being good, doing good works, living a good life. None of that's wrong, but that's not going to gain you entrance. Because even back to the book of Exodus, he didn't say to the people, be good people, do good things. He said, take a lamb and kill it. Take the blood and paint it. Stay in the house. Because unless that lamb dies, your firstborn would die. And God said, my firstborn will die so that you don't have to. Do you have the blood of the lamb on your on the doorposts of your heart? Have you called upon the Lord and asked him to be your savior? Have you asked Jesus to come into your life and to fill your life with living water? Because that is where life comes from. And, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be filled, shall be spared. Do you know the Lamb of God who sits on the throne? Have you called out to him? Jesus is coming back. Don't know when. Not on the planning committee. On the welcoming committee. Hopefully my lantern's going to be going strong when he comes. I'm going to be ready. Say, okay, cool. Let's go. But is everyone in this room ready? 
have you called upon the Lamb? Because if you haven't, then you're not ready. That's the point of prophecy. Be ready because he is coming. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We don't know the time. But we do know the outcome. (laughs) We do know the final score. We know good over evil. We know there's a holy city. We know there's a new heaven and a new earth. We know there's, there's relationships beyond our wildest dreams. We know that there are things that are going to be so indescribable that John, in his language, in his, uh, in his, in his life, did his best to try, try to give us a description, but even now we struggle with understanding what it all means and what it's all like, what it's all going to be like. What we do know, though, Father, is unless we know that we desperately need a Savior, the Lamb of God, and we call out to the Lamb, and we have his blood on our, the doorposts of our heart, we invite him into our lives, we don't have any hope for the future. If anyone here has never called upon the Lord, I pray tonight, they might pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I realize that I am lost that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I realize you came to die on a cross for me. You died so that I could live. You gave your life to me. Now I, a sinner, you took my sin. I, the sinner, now take your, your blood on my heart. I ask you to come into my life and give me the living water and forgive me of my sin. And I want to begin a journey with you that will go on forever. Father, if anybody prayed that prayer, I'd pray that it would let somebody know that they called upon the Lord. They asked Jesus to be their Savior because probably they're praying for him. For the rest of us, Father, may we not just walk away and agree or disagree with the, with the position of the free church on the end times. But may we get excited about heaven and may we prepare our hearts and live our lives in readiness for the return of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.